You know what you're listening to, right? Three, two, one. Uzima Health and Wellness. What the doctor say? Welcome to another edition of What, How, Why Wednesday. Dr. K is in the house. I'm Tamara G from 101.5 Light FM in Miami. And so happy to be here on blackdoctor.org once again. Thank you all so much for having us. And this week on What, How, Why Wednesday, we're going to be discussing gunpoint. We need a ceasefire. We have some wonderful doctors. Their specialty is dealing with what happens after gunfire. We have a psychiatrist. We have a trauma doctor. And we're going to be finding out more information about truly why we need gunpoint. We need a ceasefire on blackdoctor.org. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. K. Thank you for coming and doing this once again, because Truly, there have been so many topics that have affected our people and just people in general. Some of us personally on this call, we were, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And we would love also, if you're watching, to please put any comments, any questions in the chat, and we will get to those comments before we get off tonight. But welcome, Dr. K. So happy to be with you again. Thank you for inviting me. I thank everybody. I'm just happy. It's good to be with everybody as we can begin this conversation, this very serious conversation about gun violence in America. This is one that we just had to do and it fit with what is going on. How can we stop it? And why is this persistent? What what can we do? Uh, how can we go about it? And again, why is this persistent? So every which way we feel like this title is appropriate. Mass shootings have been on the rise since the pandemic. We talked about a lot of things during COVID and lo and behold, we've had mass shootings after mass shootings over the last 60 days that have made the uh, headlines. We of course are dealing and reeling with the painful uh, fact that we've had another mass school shooting. We're reeling with the fact that we had another uh, mass shooting in Buffalo where people of color were targeted simply because of race. We are dealing with uh, an 80-year-old being shot at a graduation. And so what we want to do is now pause on this very important conversation and just reflect on it. I uh, want you to understand that we're up 13% in mass shootings. Now, mass shootings are defined as when four or more people are shot. That does not mean when one person is shot in your community that it's less painful, but we've been dealing with mass shootings. Uh, but the other conversation that we had is that are mass shootings separate from community violence? Because we are seeing the fact that some of these shootings make the news, but by and far in black communities, we have mass shootings all the time. And so we need to reflect and see where we are as a community post-pandemic and why there is an increase in these events in our communities. I was in a film festival in Baltimore. Baltimore is another hot city uh, in terms of gun violence, and they are embarking on what they call a ceasefire coming soon. And that is when they get out block by block in hard-hitting zip codes and uh, encourage the people of Baltimore to put the guns down. And I love what one of the gun activists said, if somebody breaks this ceasefire in 72 hours, it does not mean we failed. It does not mean that we broke the promise. That person broke the promise. So continue to put the guns down and have a ceasefire. Tonight, I will have with you two of the best people that I could find to have this conversation with, Dr. Ron Kennedy Bailey. We call him RKB. He is a forensic psychiatrist. He is also the chairman of LSU Health Science Center in New Orleans' Department of Psychiatry. Let me be very clear. He is the first black chairman after 35 years to be the chairman of uh, psychiatry at LSU in New Orleans, another uh, city that is uh, on the topic in terms of gun violence. But most of us know Ron Bailey as the 113th president of the NMA. And you also may know him just as a friend, as I do, and you also know him as a staunch Morehouse man. So we have to give it up to Morehouse. He is a proud Texan. Tamara and I have found the best in Texas. <laughs> we have to toot that he's from, from Beaumont, Texas. So I, I think I got all the highlights, Dr. Bailey, and you'll give some more. We also have Dr. Kenesha Williams. Uh, Dr. Kenesha Williams is an assistant uh, trauma surgeon at Emory Hospital in Atlanta. She is, now let me read, let me get this right, Kanisha, because um, I want people to understand your role. This is important. You actually serve as the chief quality officer for the Emory Department of Quality Improvement, and that you are the student clerkship director for the medical students. 
at Grady Hospital and Emory School of Medicine. And so this is a big task that you have also being a trauma surgeon, a surgical intensivist, and also serving on the most important committees in terms of student education and quality improvement for surgical outcomes for these big institutions. We know that Grady and Emory are the two major hubs and Morehouse School of Medicine are three major hubs in Atlanta dealing with gun violence. So I thank you too for your time. And so Dr. Bailey, I wanna start with you because we need you as a psychiatrist to help us make sense of the senseless. Most of the time when people are shot, whether it's one person, make sense of the senseless, Dr. Bailey. Yeah, thank you very much. I thank Dr. Outler for having me and the entire group. Uh, we've all been doing a lot of media. We're going to see you here. It's uh, exhausting, actually, for healthcare professionals because we all, I think, our hearts go out to uh, that family, that community, as well as others that were not there on site but have been equally, I think, adversely impacted by the emotional trauma of watching uh, the violence and the carnage uh, and the fact that it now occurs uh, with all groups, children and women and and the elderly. Three things really come to mind, uh, and I'd love to take some questions as well throughout the day. One person foremost, it's hard to have this argument, and I've been writing about, as um, Dr. Holland mentioned, for this issue for almost a decade now, without simply saying that until we get the issue of guns under control, the volume of guns, 400 million in America, more guns than Americans, the capacity of guns, their high magazine capacity, like machine guns uh, with rapid fire capability, the fact that you can actually manipulate them and make a small gun or bigger gun, what's called a bump stock, and uh, make a gun that was bought legally, uh, illegally purchased gun because of its capacity uh, and, and high volatility. Uh, until we can get those type issues under control, we just will not be able to live in a civilized society without the fear of gun violence in everyday life. We talk about having metal detectors in certain places, airports and, and ball games. What if every time you went to a library or a school, for example, or a grocery store, uh, you had to have a, a, a metal detector? The second point I'd like to make, I think it's also very relevant that this idea that certain groups are more problematic is just patently false. The reality is the data would argue that the groups that are most likely to harm or kill you with a gun are individuals with alcohol or drug dependency, drug-related problems, those who have been victims of gun violence, and those who have been perpetrators of gun violence. And none of the 50 states have, a law, have laws to uh, preclude access to or buying those type weapons. But all 50 states have laws limiting persons who have a prior history of a psychiatric diagnosis. Those are viewed as being SPMI or chronically mentally ill from accessing weapons. Our group's really only about four or 5% more likely to engage in gun violence. So this over discussion about capturing the mentally ill, although there's some relevance to it, I won't say that it's irrelevant, but it's irrational to discuss that concern so much in the mix of the overwhelming evidence that individuals who actually are more likely to use guns to harm others uh, we put very little restriction in gun reform capability in that regard. But I think that the other issue is law enforcement. Uh, we really have to, I think, have a coordinated source of activity between our society and law enforcement that we really crucially don't have now. I think we're losing the concept of safety and security and trust and confidence in law enforcement. This entire idea uh, that uh, law enforcement um, would always, if, if you had a good guy with a gun, uh, beat a bad guy with a gun, falls on his face. When you saw what happened in Uvalde, when persons actually didn't follow rules, they weren't practicing, they weren't coordinated, and they didn't do what all of us would have thought you would have done. If you had a gun and you were trained in law enforcement, when children were at risk, would be to enter the building. So I think that breakdown in coordinated services by law enforcement and government is strikingly aberrant in the eyes of all of us who think that we have a system of protection that would make sense. Those, I think, are the three biggest points, I think, uh, take our messages for this discussion. I look forward, I think, to my other colleagues' comments today and, and the dialogue. Dr. Kanisha, Dr. Williams, you know, you're a surgeon, so you're seeing the trauma, you're seeing the part that we really can't appreciate, just like Dr. Bailey, really, you know, given his specialty in psychiatry, there are a lot of laws protecting whatever medical legally someone says after they've shot someone, they're going to trial, he's done that forensic psychiatry in Houston, uh, that's where we met initially. You are also in a, a very hidden, unknown area. As an anesthesiologist, you and I can speak just by our eyes, you know. And so I trained at a level one trauma center as well at Cook County in Chicago. I uh, was not uh, at Grady, I was at Grady, uh, but not in capacity as a physician. But I know that uh, when you're in these rooms and we're together and we are having this, you know, working in tandem to save a life, uh, can you speak to what you want the families to understand about your role and what, what you see? Before I move on to that, I would also want 
patients and family to understand that I'm not only a trauma surgeon, but I also grew up on the south side of Chicago and witnessed someone being killed myself when I was a teenager. So I have a unique perspective. And so taking care of patients, trauma patients, is difficult because it affects everyone involved. It affects the trauma patient um, who's shot. It affects that patient's family. It affects the first responders. It also affects the physicians, the nurses, everyone that's taking care of that patient. We try to do the best we can with everything that we can. One of the things I want everyone to know is that the patient comes in, we do what we can, we save the patient. The patient sometimes has a prolonged course in the hospital, and then the patient may go home. But then we know that after that, the patient deals with psychological PTSD, um, alcohol, substance abuse, all different types of things that can happen with the patient, things that we try to help with. You know, one of the things that we also deal with is knowing that patients are often going back to the same environment that they came from. So sometimes we see patients that come back. And that's also very difficult because you try to do what you can with social workers. This is a multidisciplinary problem. So this is something that needs to involve physicians, nurses, counselors, social workers, uh, family members, everyone needs to be involved in order to help patients recover from this. And it's something that leaves a lifelong problems for patients, not just psychological, but also physical. When we take care of patients, you think about it, somewhere approximately 100,000 patients are injured but not killed from gun violence every Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. So that's a a lot of individuals out here uh, dealing with uh, lifelong complications and lifelong sequelae, not to mention all of those people within the environment that are also affected by this. Dr. Williams, really quickly, I want you to give us the stat for young Black men in gun violence. Young Black men are much more likely to um, be shot and killed or shot definitely disproportionate. Um, Somewhere, I believe the current numbers are eight times more likely than the general population. Um, And when we look at cities like Atlanta, cities across the country, um, we've seen increases, obviously, in gun violence. In Georgia, specifically, of 41% in the last 10 years. Um, Over the U.S., it's up 33% in the last um, 10 years. So So many people, gun rights activists, hide behind the Second Amendment. And I'm going to say they hide behind the Second Amendment because I would put big money down that they haven't read the actual Second Amendment and what the content of that says. It says a well-regulated militia. Mm -hmm. That's part of the Second Amendment. So that doesn't mean that you can run around and have an arsenal in your home or allow just anybody, an 18-year-old who can't drink, who can't do a lot of many things without having a license, but to let them to go buy two AR-15 basically assault rifles, and they keep trying to disguise it as hunting weapons, but we know that's not what it's used for, and then allow YouTube to have videos on there to where they can convert these guns to get more magazines. And so what's really is we are supporting, whether it's silently or explicitly, the violence being so readily available, and then we say, We use that old phrase, the only way to stop a bad person with a gun is a good person with a gun. And statistically speaking, that is untrue. It is, I I read a statistic recently that said about 3% of gun violence are stopped by the good guy with the gun because they're not trained and there's a whole lot of things that roll into that whole process. And so basically in summation, we're falling prey to a bunch of narratives that are being Spewed out in the media about the Second Amendment, the good guy with the gun. We got all these cliches, and none of them are actual, factual, or able to be put into real action to save lives. Yeah, I was saying briefly uh, all those points are correct, and the other um, said the truth out loud is that there's just too much money changing hands in the entire enterprise. I I can't read a number that's ever lower than the last number I read. It was a billion dollars, and it was $3 billion, now it's just many billion dollars. Yeah. So the sheer uh, volume of guns, 400 million in America, the expense of those guns, people claim they're buying one for whatever reason. Somebody breaks it out and steals it and sells it on the underground market. The price goes goes even higher. So I, I think that um, we have to appreciate that all the rest of it, I think, has always just been a language of, of, of underpinning to kind of keep the message going. 
And that's what's so shocking and surprising, I think, even when our national governmental leaders don't appreciate that and, 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 and make a, a operative change. My final point is we've always had some degree of gun control. So uh, I like to also argue that this idea that we don't have gun control is also not true. No matter how much money you have, I have a son in the military. No matter how much money you have, you cannot go and buy a tank because the military couldn't stop you riding down the middle street with, with, with a tank. So to allow folks to buy other guns that are, are too strong, and clearly we can't really stop it because there's no gun control, and then there, there, there are mortars and tanks which you can't really buy, means that there always has been some degree of restraint. We just haven't made it at the level where it needs to be to protect civilians. That's what changed. Tamara? I wanted to ask this question um, to Dr. Williams because I, you mentioned that obviously the person who has been shot has been affected and they're in your uh, operating room and then it trickles down to the family members and what happens. But for someone who has never been around, you know, someone who's been shot or has seen that, what does that little bullet do to people once it hits the body? People just think they can get up, everything will be okay after you finish mm -hmm. back together. You know, it, it's it's interesting. So the bullet, depending on what type of bullet it is, some of them will enter the body and it will completely destroy the liver, for instance, or it hits the heart and it, it damages uh, multiple chambers of the heart. I've had patients who have been shot 19 times and somehow it doesn't hit any major vital organs. I've had multiple patients that have been shot one time and all it takes is for it to injure a major vessel in your body the liver, a uh, major vessel in the liver or heart for it to cause death. There's bullets that we have that enter the body and then explode. And so again, it can be very disruptive or they can just enter the body and pass through a path where they enter the intestines. We have patients that in end up with uh, ostomies where they're not able to pass through normally. A number of things that were that the bullets can do. I've seen bullet injuries. I, there's no part of the the body that I haven't seen injured that I haven't operated on. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've trained. I trained in Chicago at a level one trauma center, and then I've been at Grady for five years now. And I always tell people there's no part of the body that I haven't operated on, except for the brain, because that's the neurosurgeons. We see great devastation. So uh, I want to, you know, again, I was at Cook County, an unsettling feeling when you, to see a child shot. We call gun violence a public health issue. It is also a health disparity issue. We call it a public health issue, again, because we see certain communities under siege all the time. And so while we can argue about finances and the logistics, where the guns come from, I thought that uh, Spike Lee did an excellent movie called Chirac which they call got controversial and they want to get hung up on the title of the name, but the point was well taken. If you are from Chicago, if you've trained at level one trauma centers, you knew that he was on point with, you know, his artistry and his creativity to get us to understand gun violence. What he made us understand significantly was the post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'll have Dr. Bailey speak to what that really is. And can you experience it on a community level um, I think it's very important, which is what you alluded to, Dr. Williams, is this is one of the things that if you survive, uh, even if you don't, somebody within the gun violence uh, spectrum, whether it's the family or the victim and or both, the community will suffer from PTSD. So can you speak to that as a psychiatrist, Dr. Bailey? Absolutely. I, I think we actually wrote a piece some years ago uh, after Sandy Hook happened, which uh, at that point was very similar to this issue regarding in Uvalde, with children being shot and, and killed that whole communities, the whole community would be at a risk of PTSD. Uh, for your audience, PTSD is uh, the acronym for post-traumatic stress disorder. It is uh, the most severe form of an affected or illness of a depression or an anxiety-based type problem. In order to get a PTSD diagnosis, one has to have had a life-threatening or near-life-threatening type uh, event, uh, one that was actually palpable to you. I think the history is relevant. Uh, we didn't start thinking about this until the Korean War. They called it the shell shock syndrome, got the diagnosis of PTSD after the Vietnam War. But earlier on, we thought that it would take war for human beings to have the level of stressors that would rise to the level of creating this degree of um, neurobiological pathology, uh, such as uh, the anxiety that individuals experience. Uh, we also note, though, that some individuals have a pre-existing vulnerability to an anxiety-based stressor that might make them much more likely at risk they have chronic PTSD that'll last more than six months. And we see that, I think, in our offices. We see persons who struggle in many other areas of life and mm -hmm. their function because the stress was so overwhelming of their defenses. Clearly, these issues regarding gun violence and risk of 
gun home to, to younger persons, children, and adolescents, absolutely put many of them, including whole communities, at risk of PTSD. And so I think your point is well taken also that there's what we call intersectionality in communities, where it's not just one thing that's causing a stressor and then you add gun violence to it. Dr. Williams, you appreciate that term intersectionality when we're talking about getting our patients recovered and back into a society. What is your impression of that? You know, I think we have a lot of work to be done um, in that way. You know, I think that a lot of the cities are understanding that in order to get patients recovered and back into the community, they need a multidisciplinary team. You know, this has to be a hospital-based violence program Mm. that includes physicians, community uh, workers, social workers. You know, now you have cities where the mayor's office, for instance, in Atlanta, we have a violence reduction program. Now you have clinicians involved in that program Mm -hmm. to help kind of coordinate what happens to uh, patients once they leave the hospital, Mm -hmm. Uh, helping them recover in the community, helping them navigate and helping them find jobs, for instance, resources, things that we know will help uh, reduce violence, helping uh, reduce the amount of retaliation that we see after these events. So all of those are, you know, the responsibility, really to meet the responsibility of the the trauma surgeons across the country, the people who are working uh, with the patients, the social workers, and then also the the city council, the highest of the high. We all need to work together. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Dean, uh, tell us. Uh, there was a time where I worked in the Atlanta public school system. I worked with, with teenagers. And mm-hmm. what I noticed is that social media plays a role in the escalation of violence. And, and what I meant by that is that we would have fights in the school, right? Yeah. So in high school, there would be fights. But what was happening is the kids were recording the fight, right? Mm-hmm. And then they were putting the fight on YouTube. And so now you, that person that lost that fight, had to face the shame of losing the fight, mm-hmm. but then also had to face, face the multiple times of people watching it, putting comments on it, being ridiculed over and over and over again, because now it's public. It's mm-hmm. on World Star, and, and everybody's sharing it on their mm-hmm. phones. And so now for, you can't go to, I got to get revenge with the physical. I've got to escalate to mm-hmm. get my respect back, to get my, my name back, my whatever. And so they would escalate to, more lethal forms of violence in order to get that name back. And so the escalation is being in part, I'm not, I'm not going to blame social media because you take it as it is, but the escalation is in part being fueled by social media. Dr. Bailey, uh, that leads me to a comment on one interventional strategy, and that is conflict resolution clinics, conflict resolution support systems, um, either connected to the hospital or out in the community. Have you seen these strategies uh, work? I have. Again, we've done a lot of media on this today. I think your, your show is excellent today, uh, Dr. Oliver. Uh, literally, I was on a show yesterday. We were discussing the fact that, that people need resilience. And I think increasingly we have a society where all too often too many, a critical mass of too many younger persons, uh, adolescents and, and, and early adults, and, and even some persons who are approaching middle age, unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, don't have any degree or a substantial amount of resilience to address various forms of conflict. Mm-hmm. Solution programs, as you point out, I think correctly, work to give an individual some experience, to hopefully build some confidence, mm-hmm. to build some, some strategies that I think build some defense mechanisms to be able to manage difficulty, conflict, disrespectful events, so to speak, without having to, I think, as Dean Ellis says very, very articulately, having to escalate the problem. Mm-hmm. Walking away, we, we talked to persons about finding three strategies that you can engage in that allow you to do something other than fight back, whether you go and read, whether you go for a run, whether you exercise, whether you go and talk to a close relative, whether you go and do something else more, more proactive for yourself. But it can't be that you stay in that one space. And psychologically, the only thing you can do is win in that small square of engagement where they hit you, you have to punch them. If they punch you, you have to stab them. If they stab you, you have to shoot them. Getting out of that space psychologically, I think, mm-hmm. is a long way toward developing conflict resolution skills. We, I think, as a, as a society, now we take on a much larger responsibility in doing this for many, many more persons. Mm-hmm. Also, we recently discussed, well, where are families and where are parents who have you? Mm-hmm. That's often the age-old you know, axiom to argue against when we have societal problems. And uh, that's an issue, I think, for itself. But the reality is government and professionals like ourselves can have a role to play and can, I think, have a very valuable skill set to impart to other young persons 
uh, to help them before they get to a point where they have a conflict and they show that they don't really have a capacity to manage it nonviolently. Mm-hmm. Emotional regulation is is the key. Right? And that, that was one of the things when I was counseling teenagers, we had to teach them emotional regulation. So you get angry, how do you manage that? How do you deal with that? Critical thinking, being able to handle multiple realities simultaneously and see it all the way through to the outcome. If I do this, then this can happen. We've got to be able to teach our children that again. You know, so those, those are some of the skills that I see that are lacking, uh, particularly in poverty-stricken areas where there's low emotional regulation, low critical thinking ability, and so therefore you go to stimulus response very, very quickly, even and they forget that there's a freedom to choose your response every time there's a stimulus. And so if we can teach our population as a whole, those skill set, I think we can de-escalate some of the violence and what's happening outside of what's happening in some of the conversations about gun control. We also need to tell them that there's always consequences too, because when you, <laughs> there's that, there's when that piece you too. make those choices, you've got to be prepared for the consequences. You know, when Dr. K asked me to be on to help co-host this, uh, she wanted me to tell a, a personal story and mm-hmm. try to get through it without crying. Uh-huh. But uh, one of my classmates was killed about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. He also made national headlines, Dr. John Chang in California. He was the doctor who saved everyone else at the church. You just never think that it's going to hit you mm-hmm. or someone you know, and especially someone like John Chang, most likely to succeed, had a wonderful practice in L.A., always came home to East Texas for our class reunions. We're celebrating our 35th. I know it looks like I just graduated last year, but (laughs) celebrating our 35th this year. And he won't be there because someone walked into a church and wanted to shoot up the place and kill everybody inside. And I asked this question to Dr. Williams, and I don't know if, if there's even an answer for the mental illness part of it, because even the 18 year old in Buffalo, didn't exhibit anything that would make people think that he would buy a gun and then shoot up a grocery store. The same thing with the the 18-year-old in Texas. He bought the guns legally. He passed the background checks. Everything is great, but it's really not great. So how do we know when it's not great? I'll answer the best I can. I think that we've always talked about mental illness and gun control. Mm -hmm. But what I think that we're seeing is a lot of the people who are some of the mass shootings that we're seeing uh, recently, and some of it has been linked to, I don't say the critical race theory, but the theory of uh, superiority. The great replacement. Thank you. Thank you. The great replacement. And so I think that we've always thought of it as something that's uh, mental uh, health issue. Um, but I think we're seeing more and more that it's not necessarily a mental health issue, although there's some component of that. But as you said, a lot of the shooters, there was nothing that anyone would have thought. And I don't, you know, I don't know the, the exact answer, but I can say that, you know, looking at some of the literature and having spoken to people, that's more so what we're seeing now. Dr. Bailey, I'd like you to answer that too. How do we know that that something is is brewing in their heads that, you know, when you're invited into a church and the people have welcomed you, you've been there before, really you were casing the joint. Same thing with the grocery store. Yeah, I, I think that's Williams' points are, 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 are timely. The reality is uh, we are in a period of irritative change. And I think, as we said at the very beginning, there are three take-home messages, I think, for your audience. One, first and foremost, um, having chronic mental illness, having pre-existing brain-related disorders, being diagnosed and treated, hospitalized, medications, all that kind of business, does put some individuals at a greater risk of being engaged in violent actions, probably about four, three to five percent more than the typical population. The reality is, though, those persons are more likely to be victims of violent crime, especially gun violence, uh, all kinds of violence, um, a homicide, a sexual assault, and the like, than they are perpetrators. So the entire discussion about those being mentally ill, when we have these huge outpourings of, of emotion because of shooting this nature, uh, really kind of allows, I think, society, in my opinion, and government, is where I point my fingers, to really advocate the responsibility to engage in the kind of policy development that our society really needs to provide real safety. And that's because the individuals who are much more likely to engage in such difficulty, very often these problems are interpersonal, they're very often with people that we know, you have a gun, and when there's a conflict, you grab a gun very quickly. The third thing I'd say, though, is I do think there's a new, unfortunate, additional variable 
Uh, and it may not only these last two cases of Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York, but these kinds of cases. Many, many Americans should be aware we've had more so-called mass shootings in America this calendar year than days in the, in the year. Mm-hmm. We used to describe a mass shooting as five or more, not three or more person shot in one in one setting. So clearly, it's more than just a history of mental illness. Clearly, I think uh, having access to guns of mass destruction, I'll call them, plays a role. You can hurt so many more people in a short period of time. But I think a third issue is we absolutely have individuals who don't have prior psychiatric illness, diagnosed illness, who are choosing volitionally and intentionally to engage in an unacceptable, violent behavior toward others who they don't really know. And that's scaring the world out of me and the rest of us because you wonder, where can you be safe? If somebody, I think you said very correctly, Tamara, if you go into a place that somebody you, you wouldn't have thought would have done that and they're going to do it, there's so many individuals then, it widens the, the risk uh, ratio of individuals who might hurt others. That piece, we've got to work to get our hands around. And I'm the first to say, we don't have a good idea how to handle that just yet as professionals. But we need coordinated services, we need government, we need healthcare, we need universities to be involved. We need to really think through in a better way. The mm-hmm. issue of decreasing the amount of guns is one consideration, but how to intervene early on persons who may be beginning to think psychologically in ways that may put others at risk, I think is also a strategy that should be on the table. We've got a lot of work to do. It's a uniquely American issue, uh, Dr. Bell. I just, I, you know, yeah, I you, just want to make that point because I, I think we're, 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 we're losing, when we look out around the world, the world's looking at us like, okay, this is a uniquely American phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, both in Britain, I hate to keep jumping, I apologize, but both can have passed federal legislation Uvalde happened, and we still can't have a discussion in the U.S. Congress. Mm-hmm. Both countries have already passed the bill to strengthen the gun reform that they already had. So mm-hmm. this can't be done. Our problem are our federal and state legislators. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, uh, since you brought that up, the question to, to each one of you, Dr. Baylor and Dr. Williams, COVID has produced a vacuum of funds. And so while we were talking about all these resources that are needed, uh, can you please speak to what you want to do, Dr. Bailey, in New Orleans, the program you have, and uh, yes or no in terms of funding? And then, Dr. Williams, I'll ask you the same question. Well, I'll, I'll be brief. Well, clearly, as uh, Dr. Outland knows, we tried uh, at LSU, we made a 150-page proposal to take over the clinical care, medical and psychiatric, at the Orleans Paris Prison. I'm very public about it because we did get it, and I think it's really instructive because the reality is, you know, we wrote a proposal that would provide the kind of advanced, progressive and, and engagement of young men, very often young men, 1,000 people in jail, then unfortunately 93% of which are African-American, that might begin to provide the kind of treatment that's needed to de-escalate, to use uh, the Ellis's points earlier, and to modify some of those strategies that people very often don't have. Many people go to jail early on with a non-violent offense. They get out of jail uh, for whatever reason, they then engage in a violent offense before they actually go back. We need to find some strategy and some location, and I think jails are a very good place to do so, early in the violent action or the criminogenic uh, type action of young, young men to begin to find ways to address it. And one strategy that I talked to Dr. Outlaw about was we were going to do an ACES, one of these you know, adverse child life experiences on everyone, because I believe in this comment, hurt people hurt people. So, so many individuals who have been emotionally or physically or sexually abused or harmed when they were younger are right to become the individuals when they're older, teen, late teens and, and, and young adults, to engage in violent acts toward others. We can't wait for that violent act to then put them in jail and put them in prison and, and try to be punitive toward them. I think strategies to employ some psychiatric maneuvers early may be progressive, hopefully maybe a bit more forward thinking and can be helpful. New Orleans is beginning to show some attention to it. We may get this 200-bed uh, rental treatment facility in the old VA hospital. We have some proposals on the table in New Orleans that I hope will come to fruition. And I think over time, we may be able to make some successful gains. Maybe that'll be a model for other cities. Dr. Williams, what are your community interventions uh, looking like? I know we have the Violence Prevention Center in uh, the School of Public Health. I'm a graduate of the Rollins School of Public Health. And do you have funding? Because we can talk about this, but do we have funding? So we do have funding. The city of Atlanta has dedicated money to this problem. You know, we've seen a, a uptake in violence. And the city has recognized that and they want to put things into place to improve that. So at the end of last year, the mayor's office really put out statements. Uh, One of those things was they want a hospital-based violence prevention program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Grady has had programs. And one of the things that we're looking to do is expand our program 
to work more with a lot of the individual programs that exist because there's a lot of programs that have always existed. But what happens sometimes, and especially in major cities, is that you have a lot of programs that work in silos. But it's important for those programs to work together in order to have the most impact on the community. Um, And so that's what we're trying to do. The other thing that I look to do in the future and that we're working on is really creating a community outreach so that we're getting out and reaching students, uh, reaching uh, members of the community when they're young. So going to the elementary schools is important, going to the high schools, talking with students, making sure that they understand the impact of violence or what can happen and make sure they understand their options, make sure they have, you know, role models. And so that's what we're looking to do. Question, you're walking around Atlanta. How do you feel in terms of the atmosphere? And I, I love to go to Atlanta. I love to just hop on the plane and just, you know, walk about freely. I know every point. So my question to you is, as a Black man with a son walking around, and, and even just thinking about places, do you have any thoughts about that as, as you walk around the city of Atlanta now? I, I do. I, I think there is a privilege that even as a Black man, I enjoy being you know, gainfully employed, having an income that can have me living in areas that are, are safer in the city. And so therefore, there's that piece of it. But I would be remiss to say that, that not everybody can do what I do. And so I I recognize that as my privilege. And so what I think we need to do, and I'm just speaking as a lay person here on this panel, is that more men and and people that are educated need to just go talk to some some kids, right? Go be an influence. Because one of the things that I miss the most about not working in in Atlanta public schools was I was there. I saw the gangs. I, I recognized what they're doing, but I had the opportunity to engage with a young man at, at a much deeper level. And to this day, some of them are still living productive lives and they moved away from those gangs, moved away from that violence. And yeah, they're not all going to college and all living, you know, but they're being productive citizens and they're not engaging in violence. And so we have to kind of, we saw, I think one of the biggest travesties that was done in, in many school systems was taking vocational education oh, out of the schools. Yes. Right. And so because if you don't teach somebody to how to how to work and and college is not for everybody. And and I would drop this statistic when I would be fighting with administration and they would say, I would say, when we're looking at the school, the school I work with, 25 percent of students were were going to college, 25 percent, 20 to 25 percent were dropping out. So that means the middle percent were graduating from high school, but they were entering the workforce without a skill set because everything in the classroom was taught as college prep. Mm-hmm. So you're only reaching a quarter of your student base. I said, you need to be focusing your energy on that 50% of students that are going to graduate and go to work and, and leave the school and go to work. And then maybe that effort of trying to save those kids that are going to drop out. Mm-hmm. 25% are going to go to college. A lot of them already have, have out. When I would talk to them, they had parents in their home. They had people around them that were going to support them. They were going to make that college jump. There's a few, about 5% that teachers can influence, but 20%, they were already going to go to college. Focus on getting those people work that can be gainfully employed so they can get out of the streets, get out of Because what I was seeing when kids would graduate and they didn't have jobs, they resorted to crime and violence, followed very, very you know, closely after that. I got kids that I know personally that were in my classroom that ended up being killed in Atlanta because they were joyriding, they stole a car, joyriding, and ended up getting in a car accident, running from the police. And I had to read about them in the paper. That's the real life situation of it. We have to expand our role as Black people to understand that our community, even though we may not live specifically in the community, it's still our community and we've got to go in there and be a positive impact on that community. I'll get off the phone. I have to say this because I grew up in Houston and we had schools that were focused. It's more than a job. It's about the fact that you left the day feeling like you had produced something, that you had some self-esteem and some self-worth. And so, you know, I was in the magnet program, but I was always jealous of the kids who were in home ed. And I would think that, you know, they left every day feeling that they were smart, that they had creativity, that they produced something of value. And while I was the smart girl, you know, as they say, but I never left the day of feeling, you know, that I had something tangible. And for some kids, that is vital. That is important. So, you know, we argue about certain programs and, oh, this is, you know, this makes people think that this is all that they can do. I mean, I did some testing and one day it said, you know, these are your best occupations, clerkships, beauty, beautician, what have you. Uh, that didn't uh, make me feel less than. 
I just said, okay, great. I can do this and I can study hard. But what I know about uh, kids that learn how to do home ed and vocational programs, uh, Eaton Worthy School for Cosmetology, Lamar School for Law Enforcement, they left with some type of direction and some type of goals. And I think that that's also, you know, to your point, Dean Ellis, that, that we do need to make sure that our kids feel that their life is valuable and that there's something to work towards and there's a future out there for them to have. And I think this, uh, Dr. Bailey will attest to that, that people need to feel hopeful. I fully agree. I think that also points all three of them were timely. One, I don't think any doubt, we won't be able to uh, find a way to address, we don't find a way to get more Black men in the circle of influence with, with, with young Black boys whether you are their biological father or whether you're their little league coach, if you play little league sports like I did little league baseball, or whether you're at the Y or the path where the case may be, people have to have role models. You have to see what, what people, what other people look like you do. I think it's a very timely point. Because the other issue is also true, though, this, this idea that I think Dr. Ola points out, the reality is uh, people should feel that there's a practical validation to your day, let alone your week and your year and, and your whole high school experience. And I think you're right. We all are recognizing that many young people drop out because they feel like there is no validation to the day. It didn't matter they came or didn't attend. If all the attention is just on the people who are in the magnet program or in the private school or whatever in that case may be. We, we have to, as a society, you're right, I think, Dr. Outlaw, find some relative importance and create some valuable aspects and in institutions, I think, for all the others. I didn't know the number was 50%. As others points out, that's actually well stated. If half the people there are not going to either go to college, they're not going to go to college to do these grad programs like, like many of us, if you will, or in, in a fourth are going to drop out totally. You really should be teaching to the mean, to the half that are going to finish, get a good, solid high school education, and be a productive member of society with, with, with a skill set that allows them to, to, to address a job that really matters. We're missing a lot of that and losing a whole generation because of it. And then we wonder why so many people resort to these little five and ten cent, you know, penny ante, nickel and dime crimes, and then we arrest them. And then you have probation, you volunteer probation, then you get a better difficulty. And suppose somebody gets popped, they call it a, a, the laws are against you, it's a drug offense. It's a vicious cycle for too many people who are unresourced and uneducated and unsophisticated in our society. And then they end up being a victim, in my opinion, very often of a system that overcriminalizes them and makes them part of the criminal justice system. So uh, people like us have got to find a way to break through this. I, I've been talking politics a lot tonight, but there may be some other strategies to use as well. But there's got to be a way to do this thing better. And it should be we wait until the end of the spectrum. That's why it pulls out an AR-15 and kills 20 people. And all of a sudden, I think our society says we got to do better in these areas. All of these areas, I think, very often are circumspect in this process. All right. We're going to go to some of the comments and questions that are now in the chat. Marvin says that, Ellis, you hit it on the head, no vocational education. So That's a piggyback on what Dr. Outler was saying about having value, right? We People need to feel value. We know from a psychological perspective, people need to feel value. And so what Dr. Bailey was mentioning earlier about doing that risk assessment on, on, on kids and going back and finding out, okay, were they abused as a child? And that that erodes that feeling of being valued, that self-esteem. And when you don't have value in yourself, you don't, you rarely see value in other people. And so that makes it easier to pull out that gun. Hey, I don't care about myself or my own personal safety. So why should I care about yours? And then therefore we have an escalation of violence. So we really have to find the value in ourselves, find the value in our children, help them understand what their value is and, and they can walk stronger and, and, and taller knowing that they have some worth. To ask Dr. Williams uh, this question, because before uh, we started the chat and had everybody on, Dr. Bailey had said that really a lot of the crime and a lot of the gun violence happens with personal, interpersonal, yes. you know, somebody you know, somebody that you live with, somebody that you lo love or whatever. So are you seeing this, Dr. Williams, as a disparity issue or it truly is it a gun issue like every too many people have guns regardless of what I think it's that. I think it's both I think it's a disparity issue right there's a lot that goes into it there's a lot of domestic things that happen we said there we're seeing I see the domestic part of it all the time or like you said the mm -hmm. conflict where there's conflict between uh people but you know, also there's there's a lot of guns. There's a lot of guns on the street. And you have people who, you know, one of the things that happens is that people who are exposed to violence are have higher likelihood of uh, <laughs> engaging in alcohol or, or drugs. And then those people, if they have guns, have less inhibition 
to um, using those guns. And so sometimes those guns are used on their siblings or, or wives or husbands, or there's a lot of domestic or, or acquaintances that maybe they would not have otherwise. But, you know, there are a lot of guns and we're seeing more and more people that are uh, buying guns. There's more guns on the streets. And then the amount of crime or gun incidences have increased by 33% over the last 10 years in the U.S. And so, you know, you look at other countries, you know, you have other countries where sometimes a domestic dispute is it's a lot of stab wounds, for instance, there's a lot of knives. But I think part of it is, you know, it's both. I think there's a lot that both have to be. I don't think you can just focus on one. I think you do need to focus on the amount of guns that are in the community. But I think you also have to focus on why someone would choose to use the gun in the first place. You know, so I think there's there's that that both. Dr. Bailey and Dr. Williams, um, I want to close the show by having you both. And, and I know we have like a few minutes. But what is your message for gun violence? What is that? that what is your one liner? Dr. Bailey and then Dr. Williams. My one-liner is we, we have to, as a society, coordinate services, decrease access to, to violent weapons, uh, while at the same time understanding better the emotional fragility of many of our young persons and finding ways to help them modify impulsive considerations that may lead to uh, the overuse of violence. People need better resiliency, better defense strategies, and better, better mechanisms to manage conflict in a nonviolent way. Dr. Williams? Yes, I agree wholly with Dr. Uh, Bailey. Um, and I would say that this problem is pervasive and needs to be taken with all seriousness by everyone involved. So from the highest level, it's uh, from politicians, I think there really needs to be a closer look. Well, there's two different things that happen. You have mass shootings in mm-hmm. school, and then you have the community shootings, right? Mm-hmm. The, both, there's a, those are two different things and there needs to be a focus on both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the instances that lead to them can be similar, but you know we have to focus on both and, uh, and every you know, everyone needs to be involved and it's really a it's really a public health crisis. I think that uh, what I would like to encourage people to do again, Dr. Williams, appreciate as an anesthesiologist you and I in terms of our roles, definitely have reached in and had to lock arms to save a life. And sometimes we don't save that life um, again, but all efforts, everything, every resource that we've had in terms from blood and, and, and what have you, um, the surgical skills, sometimes it's not possible. And it does affect us as physicians. It is a hurtful, hurtful feeling. And I can tell you that I've heard the scream of a mother who has lost their child to gun violence. It is a blood curling cry that there is no soothing for. And so to walk out there and have to give that news is just awful. My one-liner is if you can put the guns down, put them down, that we need to lock arms in terms of our churches or whatever community organizations, and we need to safeguard our youth and give them options on a daily basis on how to resolve conflict. There's too much normalization on Instagram, on YouTube, on what it looks like. And I want the new generation to understand it's not pretty. Dr. Williams uh, alluded to the fact that, yes, you can survive the gunshot. And yes, you will. You can be paralyzed and you can have a colonoscopy. You can be in a wheelchair. You can have bed sores. So understand that is not something that you want. We want you to be productive. We want you to be happy. And we want you to live, you know, be a contribution to society. And that's a good thing. Ellis and Tamara, you all can close the show. And I just appreciate both of you all for being here. Thank you for everything. And Ellis, I'll let you get the last words. But I also do want Dr. Bailey also to please hammer home about getting some mental health because we just don't believe in that for whatever reason. And there's, you know, it's nothing wrong with seeking help. Well, I I just simply said, you help us in writing. I think that formal psychiatric investment very often eludes us, I think, in the African-American community. But as I like to say, I've been a 32-year practice psychiatrist, and I promise people on this panel and my friends everywhere, Black people do go to the psychiatrist. They just don't put it in writing. They go to their private care doctor and ask for psychiatric medication, or they wait until there's an emergency and go to the emergency room and ask the emergency room doctor for psychiatric intervention, or they go to a non-doctor, a therapist, or what have you, and ask and, and discuss the issues and the problems. So you understand right now, I think that it's this concept of being a psychiatrist, an MD with behavioral health training, that of course our community seems to be afraid of, stigmas against. But we, like all other communities, have brain-related disorders that at times require 
therapy, medication intervention, and then hospital care. So the reality is we should walk away from that stigma so we can get care, get it early. I like what the illness picked up on the comment about the ACEs. That's what happens in any other clinical setting where you go. So I would find out early on, if when you were a child, you hit a six on a scale of one to 10 on this ACEs scale. If you hit a six on that scale, all kind of resources should come to you because you're at a high risk of adversity, of mm -hmm. psychiatric difficulty and, and diagnosis, uh, and maybe even being a victim to a lot of perpetuating a violence in the future. Well, we'll let uh, Ellis, and you wanted to say some words to Ellis before you leave. Yeah, I, I will say that, uh, and Dr. Bailey alluded to it earlier, um, you know, there's big business in violence. There is big business in guns. There is big business in prisons. We understand, like I talked about, what's, what the wording in the Second Amendment is, the wording in the 13th Amendment is, slavery shall not exist unless you are incarcerated. So there is big business in all of this. So what do I mean that by that? So number one is we've got to take control of our lives and our community. We cannot expect big business to stop being big business, and we cannot expect big business to stop paying politicians. We have as much control over what happens in our as in our communities as what happens in, in D.C., what happens in, in your city government. We have more control of that. So we've got to take it, make it our personal responsibility as a community to say, you know what, we're going to go in this community. We're going to give value to our people. We're going to be there to influence them. And we're going to take charge of that. And, and yes, and vote. Right. Because people say they want to they're not going to do anything. Vote them out. And we have that power. So we've got to take our power back, go in our communities, vote, join the NRA, vote, vote out the leadership now, vote them out too, right? So we have power. Let's exercise our power and not be so powerless. Thank you so much for joining us for What, How, Why Wednesday. Uh, I'm your co-host, Tamara G, along with Dr. Kendra Outler. She's an anesthesiologist in the D.C. area. Again, gunpoint, we need a ceasefire. Thank you to everyone who's been on. Dr. Ron Kennedy Bailey, the head of psychiatry at LSU, also the 113th president of the National Medical Association. Dr. Kanisha Williams, Emory University, also Brady trauma surgeon. And we also have Ellis Dean, who has been our technical person tonight helping us with blackdoctor.org. So thank you for giving us the platform. Speaking of platforms, don't forget to go to Dr. K's health and wellness platform. It's called myuzema.org, myuzema.org for more information and more of these that we're going to be doing. So thank you all so much for being here tonight and until next time. Thank you so much. What the doctor say?